And we're live again uh, with JavaScript Air. So just like a half hour ago, I finished up this morning's bonus show about Yarn. And uh, we're doing our very last show of JavaScript Air for now, um, episode 48, JavaScript in the Web Platform. Uh, we're joined by Brendan Ike, who created JavaScript. And um, that's pretty awesome. Uh, so we're going to be just uh, kind of chatting about uh, some of the cool things in uh, that are ahead for JavaScript and the platform. and some things that are exciting about uh, this amazing platform. So um, before we get into that, um, I just want to give a, a shout out to our sponsors that have made uh, many of the awesome things about the show possible. I'm so grateful for them. Um, that's Egghead.io, the show's premier sponsor, has a huge library of bite-sized web development training videos. Check them out for content on JavaScript, Angular, React Node, and more. Egghead.io is uh, also the host of two free Redux courses from Dan Abramoff. Find them at egghead.io slash Redux. And Frontend Masters is a recorded expert-led workshop with courses on advanced JavaScript, asynchronous, and functional JS, as well as lots of other great courses on front-end topics. Uh, check them out at frontendmasters.com. Also, a huge uh, shout out to them for um, this new thing where all subscribers have access to all of the workshops, uh, like the, the live workshops. So there are no longer tickets uh, for the workshops. Uh, just subscribers can go, um, which is pretty cool. And then uh, TrackJS reports bugs in your JavaScript before customers notice them. And with their telemetry timeline, how do you like that, uh, Tyler? Telemetry timeline? <laughs> that's, a, that's a tough word. I messed that one up last episode. No, no, I messed it up for like the first three episodes. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> telemetry timeline. It's pretty awesome. Uh, you'll have the contacts to actually fix them. And actually, if you haven't seen the telemetry timeline, uh, go to their website. I'm pretty sure there's a demo there. It's pretty cool. Uh, check them out and start tracking JavaScript errors today at trackjs.com. Um, all right, so yeah, for this show, it is the last show um, for the foreseeable future. If you're interested in learning why and and uh, that kind of stuff, um, I have a blog post. If you go to jsair.io slash sunset, um, then that'll explain why I'm sunsetting the show. Um, but uh, yeah, we have this show today, and it's going to be great. Um, if you do have questions while you're watching live, um, use the hashtag jsairquestion on Twitter, and I have that open, and I'm watching. Um, so feel free to ask questions. We'll answer those toward the end. Um, and uh, yeah, still follow us on Twitter. Uh, even though the show is sort of ending, um, if I do start it up again, I will start tweeting. Um, so that'll be the best way for you to know uh, that the show has started up again. Um, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So let's go ahead and get an intro. Um, we might have a panelist or two show up uh, partway through the show. But uh, we do have Tyler McGinnis for our panel. Hello. <laughs> and uh, again, I'm your host, Kent C. Dodds. Um, and for our guest, we have Brendan Ike. So, hey. so Brendan, why don't uh, we give a, a quick intro to you, um, who you are, what you're uh, doing, uh, especially for people who may be new in the community who don't know who you are yet. Hi, I'm, uh, I'm Brendan Ike. I created JavaScript at Netscape in May 1995. Um, I've been working on it ever since. Um, I also founded Mozilla.org in 1998, and we took it independent in 2003 and did Firefox. We started the browser market. Uh, we started HTML standardization with the WebWG. We started ECMA standardization of JavaScript. Um, and uh, the rest is history. We kind of made the modern web happen, um, and I was a big part of it. And now I think um, it's important to keep innovating on the web and doing things that give users control of their, you know, their destiny on the web. And so I'm, I'm doing a company called Brave Software. We have a, a browser on all mobile and desktop laptop operating systems that blocks third-party ads and trackers and protects you and your data. And we hope that that turns into something big um, with your help. Awesome. Um, so like already so many questions that I want to ask. Um, that last little bit you said with your help, I'm curious, um, can you talk a little bit more about uh, uh, about the Brave browser, um, what, it, what its goals are, and how people can get involved in helping? Yes. So um, I'll, I'll talk about what it is first. So Brave is not just you know, yet another browser. It is um, on all the, the operating systems we know and love. It's, it's based on sort of standard um, and as much as possible, open source code. Like it's all open source on on Mac OS, Windows, and Linux. Um, 
And on Android, it's based on the open source Chromium um, project code, which you can pretty much build a browser from. So it's all open source there, as far as I know. Um, you know, except for things like the video decoders and stuff like that. Um, and on macOS, it's based on UI WebView, <laughs> which is the old WebView, but it's the one that gives you all the control over, like, network request level blocking and HTTP to HTTPS rewriting, things like that. Um, so it's open source, so that's one way people can contribute. But the really big idea with Brave is, is you know, beyond just an open source browser, we've got three of those, maybe even three and a half, because Chakra Core in Internet Explorer and Edge is is the Microsoft JavaScript engine, and it's open source now. You know, maybe someday they'll open source Edge. It wouldn't surprise me. And then you'd have four open source engines uh, for the big browsers, and you know things like Servo from Mozilla coming along. What's really different about Brave is that we're trying to solve a problem that was um, an accident of history. When um, and I said this at a talk in in Vienna last week um, when. Mark Andreas and Eric Bina added the image element to HTML in 1993 in Mosaic before Netscape. Uh, you can find Mark's post about this. It said, hey, we wanted to add image images to HTML, so we did it. The IMG element, you just uh, can embed an image. Um, you can link to your image uh, even from another site. Why not? Right? Everybody loves cat pictures. Your friend has cat pictures. You want to hot link them from your site. Um, it's hot linking because if 10,000 friends do that and they all reload their page at once, your server melts down. But anyway, it seemed like a good idea at the time. So images were born, and they could be embedded in HTML but located on a different server. Then in 1994, um, at Netscape, Lou Montulli, uh created the cookie. And, and I think the reason he did this, I wasn't there yet, but um, I, from going there soon after I, I heard and saw the code, the idea was to prevent you from having to log in every time you went back or restarted your browser and you had a session with a site that, that knew about you that you authenticated with. Uh, because HTTP was stateless, there was really no, no way for the site, the site to remember you again. Um, and so cookies were invented to sort of cache your, your authentication credentials. And it's a little bit of storage for that site in your computer, uh, on your, you know, on your your persistent storage, your di hard disk in those days, um, and it, it's it's sent with every request, uh, and the the server can send back an update to the cookie. So it's this little bit of state that that, that can sort of uh, track the site. But it's it, in in the sense of keeping your login credentials. That tracking is good. That's keeping track of you, so you don't have to keep typing your username and password over and over, which kind of gets to be a drag. So. Suddenly, just between images and first-party cookies, tracking via third-party cookies was created. Because if you think about it, you can put that cat image on you know, NewYorkTimes.com and on ESPN.com loaded from MyCatTracker.com. And when you go to New York Times, if you haven't been there before, you load that cat picture, it can set a cookie. It can see that there wasn't a cookie or already remembered for you, and it can say, hey, this looks like a new user. I'm going to give them number 1234. And that cookie is associated with mycattracker.com. Images get cookies. Everybody gets cookies. All requests get cookies. Now you go to ESPN.com. My cat trackers, cat images embedded there too. It's um, maybe embedded with a different URL um, path name or query, so you can sort of tell if you're my cat tracker that it's embedded in ESPN and not New York Times. That's the way that the, the cat tracker site can tell which, which embedding it was uh, answering that image request for. But now it can see, hey, there's a cookie, my cookie, my third-party cookie, uh, that has user ID 1234. So I know that user ID 1234 was at New York Times first because I saw that request. And I remembered it in my database. And I gave that user that number, 1234. And now I see the ESPN URL loading that same image. And therefore, the same cookie um, is being returned, is being sent over with the request by the browser, because it's, it's, the cookie is associated with mycattracker.org. And, and sure enough, tracking was invented. And this was not intended, as far as I can tell. Um, it was used right away, though, because everything on the web gets used, <laughs> every single thing. Um, Unintended APIs, accidental, um, you know, serendipitous, wonderful um, 
discoveries that are useful or dangerous or both, they all get used. So third-party tracking became a thing because if you think about how advertising on the web works, publishers want to sort of know about you to get the best promotions in front of you. And publishers generally aren't the same as advertisers, marketers. I mean, Amazon is, and they know a lot about you, and they have a great site where they can market things to you based on just your behavior within that site. But a lot of publishers, just like a small blog or even a medium-sized news site, they don't know everything about you because they don't see where you go on the web. But the third-party trackers can try to get their, essentially their cat pictures. It's really not images anymore. It used to be that they would use what's a, a called a pixel. It was a one-by-one one image. And they would embed that, and you couldn't really see it because it was so small. And now they just use scripts. Because in 1995, I invented JavaScript. And JavaScript can be loaded remotely since 1996. And therefore, JavaScript can, can do things without even any pixels to track you. And that's how modern tracking works. And, and the point of the story is, is not that you know, tracking's all bad or all good. I think it's generally um, kind of bad. It's kind of shady. It wasn't intended, and therefore, there's no control over it. There's no way to, you know, as a user or a web developer, to really express it as a clearly intended thing. It just kind of falls out of the images cookies and scripts that we, we have as the basic building blocks. So there's this problem that the primitives are too low level and they let, you know, they're, they're tools that allow good or bad to happen. The trackers also, you know, could say they're doing good because they're trying to build up a better idea of who you are so that a small or medium publisher can go to what's called the, the buy side, the marketing side of the ad ecosystem and say, hey, I, I need good ads. I need to make some money so I can pay my server bills, pay my you know, editors and writers. Um, can you get me good ads? And the buy side will say, here, put the script in your page, and it will help track your audience, your users. And because that script comes from a third party that's embedded in a lot of other sites, we'll know a lot about them. We'll have a dossier on them compiled from you know, ESPN, New York Times, and all the other sites they went to. Okay, well, that helps the publisher maybe get better ads. Maybe not. I mean, we've all seen how advertising tends to go in these sort of boom-bust cycles where at the end of it, you have too many ads, and they're bothering you, they're retargeting you, or they're showing you parasite pictures or around-the-web pictures or you know pictures where you see something that you want to see and you click on it and you get a listicle with 20 pictures and none of them is the one you, click, you saw that you clicked on. Um, that's annoying, and the retargeting is kind of creepy. It can like ruin your, your children's birthday present if you're shopping after hours when they're in bed, and then the next day you're sort of going somewhere and you get retargeted for the ad for the gift you got for them, or even though you already bought it. That happens too in the opposite way. Like some random ad will come up and my family will be like, what have you been looking at? I'm like, whoa. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's not very precise. Uh, the, the claim that the trackers can build a dossier on you, it sounds very fancy like a spy novel. They often don't have more than a few bits to rub together. Uh, you can go to autotrader.com and suddenly you're, you're cookied as an auto-intender and you go to any site after that and you're starting to get these like Ford ads and it's like, am I buying a Ford? I don't think so. Um, but worse than these annoyances and the sort of clutter that happens as the the annoyances don't generate the, the payments, the, the performance, the revenue that the publisher wants, so the, the temptation is to add more ads. The really big problem here is that you lose all your data to these third parties, and they, they take advantage of that. They do things like pairing your sort of online dossier with your offline identity. I heard about this recently. There's something called Circulate. You put it in your website. It's a third-party tracking thingy script and it it looks for email addresses in form submissions and it hashes them does a cryptographic hash of them and tries to remember them and eventually i think it can match make you with real email identity and there are you know similar things that will sync you with your facebook identity your credit card identity so i don't know if you've had this experience you go to a brick and mortar store you buy something and then you go home and you get ads for it it's like whoa how did they know that there's a little sort of credit card ad tech module at the point of sale and it sends a signal to some server and there's some back channel where this is all synced up. Um, that's getting out of hand because it starts to identify you individually. So now 
you know, not only are they sort of deciding that you like sports or news, they're deciding who you are down to your home address. And that can be abused not only um, for marketing, it can be abused by criminals and governments, and it is. So the, the final straw for me was when I realized that malware was getting in through what are called ad exchanges, because as this ecosystem evolved between the marketers who sort of spend money to advertise brands and, and you know consumer goods and services, things like that, and the publishers who provide the space for the ads, in between those two sides of the ecosystem, a bunch of algae and shrimp and, and um, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of um, snails and other things you get taking over your aquarium, your, your child's aquarium, uh, happened to come along and fill in and try to take advantage of the money flowing through. And that enabled some predators to come in. And they, I kid you not, this is part of my talk in Vienna, they they set up fake ad agencies and they buy cheap ad space, like 40 cent per thousand impression ad space, which gets onto the top sites, like the New York Times had this in March, BBC Online had this in March. And these cheap ads actually have malware payloads in them. Sometimes they're very cleverly disguised, like um, Ad Golas, which is, I think Golas is from Dune. Um, there was a great uh, the, uh, analysis of Adgolas malware uh, malvertising by Proofpoint, and I used an image from that with permission in my talk, because it showed that there was the sort of publishers and their happy websites, and behind them were the ad exchanges from OpenX, AOL, Yahoo, and others. The ad exchanges are like auctions for real-time placement of ads. When when somebody's got the dossier on you through third-party tracking, and the publisher has embedded their script, a call goes out to the ad exchange and says here's the cookie, can you find me the best ad for this person at this moment in the context of this publisher site? And then the ad exchange sort of says, okay, well, I've got some ads, I've got some space, can I get a deal? Can, you know, do I hear 40, do I hear 45, do I hear 50? They try to get the best you know, pennies per thousand impression rate or whatever, whatever the measure of, of performance for the ad is. And the criminal gangs are willing to throw money at this, like 40 cents per thousand impression, and they sometimes win that bid. And when they win that bid, the payload comes in. It looks like an ad. Maybe it you know, feels like an ad. There's nothing overtly, obviously wrong with it. In the case of AdGolas, the, the malware loader script was, I believe, hidden using steganography, which is kind of like cryptography, but less um, mathematically uh, un un irreversible. It, it's, it's more like just hiding messages or signals inside what looks like noise, and if you know to look for it, you can see it. And so the, 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 the malware loader was hidden inside the image, and a little bit of JavaScript that was probably like pretending to be gamma color correction or something would pull that malware loader out of the image after the script had loaded on your page as part of the ad. So suddenly, you're on the New York Times and you're getting, getting pwned. Right? The, the, the Angler exploit kit from the New York Times incident would attack vulnerable plugins like Flash and Silverlight. And I don't know if you noticed yesterday there was bad news for Windows and Flash. Yet another you know, uh, patch for a, a remote code execution vulnerability in Flash. If I had a dollar for every one of these, I'd be a billionaire. And, and they're not going away. So that's what happened. Malware came into this very permissive, deep, kind of fraud-prone ecosystem. And I say fraud-prone because it, there's another problem besides the criminal gangs and the annoyances and the clutter and the money going out and your data getting identified down to where you live, and that's that there's fraud in the system. When I showed the picture of how the ad exchanges go provide you know, real-time ads, try to find the best ad for the space for the publishers, I pointed out that the exchanges take a fee when the ads come in. And they take a fee whether the ad is fake or real, whether it's malware or even just a sort of a, an ad that is, is intended to, to you know, get somebody to click on a fake site, a phishing site, or a, you know, a clickbait site. So there's a conflict of interest. The exchange owners want those fees, and they kind of don't care if they're good or bad. So they're going to take fees whether the ads are good, bad, or dangerous. And that's, that kind of conflict arises when you have this sort of deep-layered system with too many middle players, too many agents of agents of agents in between each other, in between the principles 
who are the marketers and the publishers. So anyway, long story short, this was all accidental. It's kind of turned toxic and parasitic. And I think it's a, a concern for you know, citizens around the world. You should citizens of the web, citizens of, of nations should worry about this because there's criminality, there's fraud, there's privacy, uh, there's sort of data exfiltration at a large scale. And it's it's not good for anybody except you know those middle players, arguably, who are taking their fees. So, Brendan, uh, that's like a whole bunch of really cool stuff you just said. Um, uh, one thing you mentioned uh, that Flash has so many vulnerabilities that if you got a dollar every time, you'd be a billionaire. <laughs> um, so, I'm I'm curious why that is. Like, what what is it about Flash that makes it um, so like consistently vulnerable? And is there at any chance, like the, the web keeps um, adding more APIs, giving you more power um, as a web developer. Is there any chance that we could see um, our browsers being just as vulnerable and dangerous as Flash was? You know, I don't want to pick on Flash. Browsers have vulnerabilities. Any significant code base is going to have vulnerabilities. It's kind of a, a truism. Um, I mean, it's, it's a scientific fact, really, mathematical. Um, I was seeing, uh, watching a talk by Sergey Bratis, and he said this is a, you know, it's a consequence of um, the, you know, sort of undecidability. The uh, Turing um, and uh, Church developed David Hilbert's tenth problem, which was Hilbert said, "Can you make a? I think it was, can you make a sort of a mathematical system for solving certain kinds of equations?" And this led to the general idea of, "Can you make a?" A computer that can look, you know, look at a program and decide whether it halts the halting problem. And Turing proved you cannot. And this is a serious, con you know, serious consequences, including we cannot statically analyze our code and find all the bugs. So we have to test it at runtime. Static analysis is good; it's it's additive and complementary. I still find like fuzz testing, where you generate travesty inputs and feed them to programs is more productive than static analysis, but you want both. So, so this is kind of, it, when people learn this, sometimes they're, if they are far seeing, they realize this is, this means security will be a, a job forever. <laughs> it means, um, you know, you, you cannot hope for a day that comes when we suddenly, you know, fix the last remote code execution vulnerability and we're done. Because living code always changes and changing code needs testing because you cannot statically find all the bugs. So I don't want to pick on Flash too much, except now I'm going to pick on it because it really has gone sour too. And the reason is I think Steve Jobs killed Flash, but he did it with some, you know, fist of the North Star um, super punch that caused Flash to become a zombie that's been lurching around, you know, um, eating people's brains ever since, and eating my computer's brain until I turned it off the other year. <laughs> um, it, it, he, Steve Jobs, you know, two of his greatest contributions, in my opinion, are thoughts on music, where he said no to DRM, and thoughts on Flash, where he said basically Flash is like this other runtime. We already have our own web browser. You know, we already have Safari, WebKit. Uh, we don't need Flash. And Flash is just going to suck power and be, you know, a second-class citizen. And I think he was... Right. I mean, people said he was unfair, and there were things he said in the blog post that weren't true. Like he said, Flash is based on older code. It's like, wait a minute. You know, iOS, macOS are based on like BSD Unix and the mock project from, from CMU from the early 90s or whenever. Um, you know, there's a lot of old code on, on, in Apple software. But the age isn't the thing. It's whether it's living code that's been brought forward. And the problem with Flash, I think it was a single vendor that had its day and did really innovate with Flash, truly innovated ahead of the web because the web was being you know, monopolized by Microsoft. So while we were trying to do Firefox and take back the web, and we did succeed in that, Macromedia was charging ahead with Flash, and they did a bunch of cool stuff. They even picked up a version of JavaScript that was designed on paper but never implemented outside of Microsoft's system called JS2. This was the original ES4. Um, it never got through the standards body because uh, ECMA was mothballed in 2003 due to the IE sort of nuclear winter, the IE monopoly. But but the Macromedia guys picked it up and they they already had a language based on JavaScript called ActionScript, you know, one and two. I think two added a few other things on top of one. Might have added some kind of class, I forget. And then ActionScript three was the big one where they took these ideas 
from uh, Waldemar Horwat, uh, who I gave the keys to the kingdom to when I was at Netscape, when I went to do Mozilla after I had standardized the first version of JavaScript. And Waldemar was very smart, and he said, I'm going to make a big JS2 that's going to be like the next version. It'll have classes and packages and namespaces and all sorts of stuff. Some of that we then tried to also dust off for ES4, and that's why we partnered at, at, when I was at Mozilla with Macromedia, who got bought by Adobe. So Flash had this sort of arc where it was doing well, it was innovating, and they did Flex. I don't know if you remember that. Um, XML markup for uh, building you know, apps, rich apps, and you could write ActionScript uh, when you needed to, but you could do a lot with the Flex. That was all cool. And it was a single vendor, so to the extent that they worked diligently and they used fuzz testing and static analysis, they could have kept ahead of their security bugs. But I think it's hard because they were closed source and they were a single vendor for them to do that. And after Steve Jobs' thoughts on Flash and it was clear that it was not going on to iOS, Adobe had a real problem. I'll tell a story about this. When I was at Mozilla, we were still facing this hard problem of getting Flash working right on mobile. And the only way I think that at that point Adobe was doing Flash on mobile was on Android. And Android was not, you know, like Lollipop or M or N or whatever. It was pretty old and it had this terrible WebKit version. You know, this was like gingerbread or even earlier. Um, but they had Flash. And Google had thrown engineers at Adobe doing things like the Pepper API plugin uh, version of Flash. This was like a better plugin API. And so there was a meeting, it was a very weird meeting. It was like we were stuck at Mozilla thinking, how are we going to get Flash working on mobile? If we're trying to get on Android and there's still a lot of Flash content, which there was then, this was 2011, I believe, um, how are we going to do it? And we went to Adobe and we said, can we get a really good Flash embedding going for the Mozilla engine, Gecko? And they said, well, why don't you just use Pepper? And we said, we can't really use Pepper because that's like using Chromium, so we'd have to sort of get rid of Gecko or do some kind of a mashup between the two and it'd be a lot of work and we'd rather just take the flash that we have in Gecko and make it better. Why don't we do that? And the Adobe people were like, we feel like we're children whose parents are fighting and, and we don't like it. Why can't you just get along with Google? I'll, I'll help you get on the phone with you know somebody at Google who I happen to know already. And I said, look, I, I'm here to meet with you, not with Google. Why, why are you talking about Google all the time? And they were doing this sort of, why can't mom and dad get along? And you know, Mozilla is a lot smaller than Google. It was a very strange meeting. What followed in two days, I kid you not, was they said, oh, never mind. We're dropping Flash on mobile. Because, and by mobile, they meant Android. Because Steve Jobs had already killed it on iOS, which means it's not going to be on mobile. If it's not on the shiny best mobile device, it's not worth putting on Android. And Adobe threw in the towel. And that was 2011. But Flash is still on the web, especially on what you see on your big screens, your laptop and desktop. It's still used for ads that were created you know, within the last six years, sometimes five years ago, but they're still being sold. In New York, you know, there's a, somebody, a media buyer is out there looking for space to fill with ads, and they have some Flash ads that promote some product that's still in the market. Flash ads are still trending up. Last, last I heard from a friend at Microsoft, they're, I think this might be out of date now, I hope it is, but two years ago and then a year ago I heard that they were seeing in Microsoft Edge a rising tide of Flash ads. My solution with Brave is to block those, and I think nobody really needs Flash ads. But this is why Flash lives. It's like a zombie. The reason it's lingering is sort of bad legacy. And since Adobe kind of walked from it and did you know, Creative Cloud and went to sort of a subscription model and said, you know, we're sort of a services company and software as a service and platform as a service or you know, Omniture, whatever, there's no you know, incentive for them to really lean into Flash and do all that fuzz testing and all that hard work figuring out deep in the ActionScript virtual machine or in the C++ code why there's a memory safety bug that can allow remote code execution. So Flash is just a, a sort of toxic, <laughs> brain-eating, <laughs> um, you know, vomiting zombie. It's <laughs> been forsaken. Well, plus it sucks to update. <laughs> Nobody wants to update Flash. You have to close all your browser tabs. But <laughs> it's a pain. It, 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 and that's what jo Jobs was right. Jobs didn't like extra you know, layers of stuff. And you know, I, I used to own Apple Mac 2 CI back in the old, old days. Um, I never got an Apple II in the really old days because I was a 
a high school student or college student and I couldn't justify it um, to my parents because they were sure I'd play games and they were right. <laughs> I was like, no, I'll make language flashcards. And they're like, you'll play games. Uh, <laughs> so I never got an Apple II, but I did have a Mac II CI later. And it was just a tight little machine. I think it was System 6. And, you know, there were, say what you will about Apple, I think they always like to have sort of a tight hardware software integration. They have, you know, IOKit, they have AppKit, WebKit. Some of these are better than others, in my opinion, as pieces of software in terms of design and implementation quality. But they don't have a lot of extra fat. They don't have two of everything or three of everything. And so Flash would have definitely been one too many compared to WebKit, especially since, um, you know, the original iPhone was supposed to be up about the web. They said, the web works, Jobs said. It's, he held up the phone. He said, the web finally works. And that was their app model for the first 10 months. So anyway, uh, that's why Flash is particularly bad. I think it's been forsaken. I think it's economically, Adobe can't justify too much effort on it, but it's they, they do try to patch it. And that's why there was a patch yesterday for a very dangerous bug <laughs> that was being exploited in the wild. And so you know, back to the Angular exploit kit and malvertising, the, the Angular exploit kit was the, the kit that was attacking not only Flash, but Silverlight. To be fair, Microsoft copied Flash. <laughs> they called it Silverlight. What were they thinking? You know, how obvious <laughs> is that? And it, it has vulnerabilities, too. And Java, in its day, was the number one source of paid malware exploits. Brian Krebs said this about six years ago, I think. Um, you know, it wasn't JavaScript. It wasn't the browser. But the Angular exploit kit, as far as I can tell from the security analysts I followed, disappeared in June. That doesn't mean malvertising disappeared. Now there's the Neutrino exploit kit. There's the other stuff out there that isn't known. Sometimes these things, you know, backdoor your system. Sometimes they try to make grandma's system part of a botnet. But what some of them do, I think Angular did this, is they do ransomware. And ransomware is really insidious because, you know, grandma's PC is suddenly hostage and she's reading these, you know, laughing skulls message on her screen saying how to buy Bitcoin and send it off to some address you know, somewhere in Russia in order to get her system back, in order to decrypt her disk. And, and the really insidious thing is they don't charge too much. So like it's two Bitcoin, you know, it's 1200 bucks. Grandma wants her grandkids' pictures back and she's embarrassed, so she pays it. This does not go to Interpol, it does not go to the FBI. So this is an unsized problem and it's, it's, I, I think it's pretty serious. Just the capability is dangerous because if it's not used for overt ransomware, it's used for backdooring, for botnet, um, conversion and, you know, for espionage and, and nation-state uh, misbehavior. So um, plugins are a problem. Browsers are a problem. Browsers have bugs, too. That's why it's important to keep up to date. That's why, you know, um, Chrome, Firefox, and um, Safari all update very often, and IE updates often now in the modern era. They used not to, but Microsoft learned the hard way and, and did a good job reforming itself on security patching um, over the years. And Brave updates often. We update often just to add features too because we're so young, but you really do need software that it needs to be living, that means maintained and fuzz tested and analyzed. It means also that you're, you're getting updates to your users or they are going to be vulnerable. Nevertheless, there's a, a big black market for exploits. It's, it's the big story in security now. Um, you, you just can't... Um, keep ahead of them. It feels like not only an arms race, but kind of a losing race in that people are using um, C++ and C. These are powerful languages. C++ is great, right? It's evolving still. It's got lots of great features. Formerly unsafe. You can talk about using template types and being careful. At the end of the day, it's unsafe. Um, that's one of the reasons that Mozilla, I, I sponsored Rust, and that's why I'm excited about Rust. We also see other safe languages coming before. I just wanted to say, while I was kind of pessimistic about security because of the um, the undecidability problem, there there are better tools and there are better programming languages. And and I'll, I'll pause there because that's a hopeful note for the future. I think if we use those better languages like Rust, we will have fewer security bugs down the road. Oh, that that is a nice thing to end on there. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, I know that, like, um, so obviously, um, Flash is something that we want to not have running on our machines. I, I've disabled it in uh, the plugin in my in my browser, um, but sometimes I I go to a site um, that requires it to to watch a video or something. I have to like open in incognito mode or something. 
Um, but I, from what I understand, um, Google Chrome uh, has started to, or will soon, um, automatically block uh, Flash unless it's the only thing that's powering the site. Um, did, like, have you heard about that? And, and is Brave doing something similar, or how is Brave combating this problem? Yes, I've heard about that, and it's it's. Uh, I think it's a little bit slower. I wasn't sure what their plan was. I think it might be changing since we last looked. At first, it sounded like they were going to turn it off by default, but they had this sort of growing list of sites where they would actually allow it because, as I said, unfortunately, it's still required for some sites. And um, that that looks just too dangerous to us at Brave, so what we've done is we've turned it off by default. And if you go to a site that needs Flash, you will get a black plug-in rectangle with you know, a, a, some kind of a prompt that allows you to turn it on, uh, sort of go into the general preferences and turn it on. That's the first line of defense for us. And then if you do that, it's still off for any site, but we intercept the thing that tries to load it, and we, we say, do you want to turn Flash on for this site? And then you can do that. I think you might even have to reload. We really don't make it easy for you, which is kind of intentional. And it remembers for that site, but <laughs> we did something extra because Flash tends to have endless vulnerabilities. After seven days for that site, it disables again automatically. So <laughs> we really mean the Flash. Um, and I think that's appropriate because that zombie's kind of, it's like eating everything. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> I love how hard you've made it. <laughs> Right. That's Yon Zhu did all that work. So you know, and, and she's fielding uh, different variations on a theme where Flash comes in through some sneaky embedding or some different way that we can't always intercept. So we're working on it. So people shouldn't just assume that we hate Flash so much that there's no way to make it work on a given site. We'll t we'll take bug reports and we'll try to fix them. But we're definitely not going to make it easy, and we're not going to turn it on by default. It is off by default in Brave. But Silverlight isn't. Or... No, Silverlight's off. We don't even have other plugins. I think huh. Silverlight's dead anyway. Um, the story there is that Silverlight was important, especially on the Mac, because Netflix needed it for some level of DRM, sort of software obfuscated DRM. Um, and maybe on Windows earlier they needed it. But then Microsoft, uh, Netflix, and Google got together and did HTML5 encrypted media extensions, which is DRM for HTML5 video. and um, Pretty soon, before that spec was even like, might not even been a working draft. I don't know what state it was in. They started shipping support for it because they wanted to get rid of Silverlight. So Silverlight's dead, and that's good because the Angular exploit kit was targeting Silverlight as well as Flash, and maybe even the Java plugin, which Oracle was very bad steward of for many years, and finally got wake up calls with massive exploits. And I'm not sure how good it is either, but we don't. And Brave, we don't do any of those plugins. It's just. Plugins are dead. It's just a matter of time. They're they're the Walking Dead. <laughs> so I want to switch gears a little bit here. Uh, I think because your engineering background is so prestigious, uh, a lot of people kind of overlook your CEO background. That's something I'm interested in because you've basically gone from this like hardcore engineering role to the last few years being in a CEO role. Um, so if you were to give advice to some people kind of doing that same transition, um, what advice would that be? Oh, thanks. It's a good question. Um, well, you know, for one thing, doing Mozilla, even though I was CTO for a long time, you have to sit in the rooms where you're making faithful business business decisions. You're figuring out how you're going to survive. You know, what's going to fund you, um, which partners you work with, which ones you don't, how you work with them. So it's impossible not to learn that way. And even before that, I was like a principal engineer at Netscape. There were lots of opportunities like that. But I kind of forswore management too long. So I would say, don't do that if you. If you get to a level of um, achievement where it makes sense to get into management or some kind of technical leadership position, do it because you can cause more to happen than your own ten fingers can type. Right? That's the, the real win there, and you can you can help um, people grow and, and do things together that none of you can do individually. So it's great to be an IC, and I did it for a long time. Uh, so when I got to the technical leadership position, then I was doing things like influencing but not managing. Influencing can work, but you end up, especially if you get into a larger organization, having to influence person to person, and that that you know gets attenuated across seven degrees of Kevin Bacon, and it it can be a drag, and you can run into all sorts of politics. So management is you know without 
throwing your weight around with, with true leadership management gives you this uh, extra sort of dimension beyond influence, which is that you're actually you know, deciding on the order of work and helping people charge up various hills and you know build various castles, sky castles. Let's hope they stay up. Um, and you know the CEO level is just the sort of top of that, where you have they have to stop, be the place where the buck stops, as um, one of our presidents said. Was that Truman? Um, and and you know that means you get the accountability too. And I think the other thing that I would say that's valuable is, and this is something that I hope came out when I was talking about advertising earlier, you have to have some amount of empathy to model various people's business concerns. Like maybe they are rapacious pirates, but maybe they have, you know, some legitimate <laughs> business needs. And at the end of the day, everybody has to, you know, put some food on the table. So you have to look at various interests and how they align and possibly conflict and sort of, it's like solving a puzzle. Can you get the interests to align more than conflict or align totally, which can be beautiful. Um, can you make deals that are durable and, and that, that really uh, serve both parties' interests in some complementary way? I, and my best example of that was when we did Firefox, we had this hot new browser when no one thought you could have a browser, like Internet Explorer was it. The web was over. Uh, and suddenly Firefox is taking back market share from Microsoft, which has never been done in any category that I know of. And Google, Google's got this awesome search engine since 1998. People are using it instead of AltaVista or whatever because they have page rank. They count inbound links as reputation. They can't be fooled by you know, the contents of the document having spammy you know, hidden HTML comments that contain dictionaries or whatever. Um, Google has this great search engine, and they figured out how to do search ads, placed results, as Sergey called them. And it's kind of beautiful because they can be as good or better than the organic results. They look texty. They aren't really annoying. Uh, and by the time we started dealing with Google at Mozilla in 2004, they already tuned up their sort of AdWords system, um, second or third generation of the search ad business. And so we had this complementary partnership. Like Google doesn't have a browser. Firefox doesn't have a search engine. That was a good deal. Um, it didn't last, and things are, never last forever. So at some point, you know, the Firefox people uh, that Google was employing, uh, I think this was early 2006, went off to do Chrome. Uh, there was a demo I heard from some of my friends who had been Mozilla hackers, Darren Fisher and Brian Reiner. I think Darren runs Chrome now, um, the whole group. Um, they did a demo in mid-2006 that was Chrome, and it was awesome. It wasn't, I heard anything about V8, because V8 was just starting that. It was more like... We're going to make the sad tab because everyone knows plugins crash. Everyone knows WebKit crashes, and it's a drag when your whole browser goes down if it's Safari or Firefox. So they did a demo where they had several tabs, and it's easy enough to have a captive crashing, you know, specimen somewhere. And they made a sad tab appear, and they got a standing ovation. That was that was the real big idea with Chrome: process isolation. It also gives you responsiveness. It also uses a lot of memory if you let it. Um, so uh, I think. CEO, management, leadership, sorry, I went technical again. Uh, having some idea of, you know, interests and how they might might merge and align and, and be complementary and, and working on that uh, is good. And, and to just finish that thought, I'm not sure Mozilla could have done anything to, um, you know, to forestall Chrome any further. I think Google, when I, when I talked to Larry a page, I think in 2005, and he was all enthusiastic about WebKit, I said, you know, you guys should probably do your own browser because they're big enough, they have enough talent, and they can sort of put their own, you know, flavor on it. They can decide what it should and shouldn't be. So um, you have to be willing to let let deals um, like the search partnership end. Now, Mozilla didn't, and then for a long time, it was considered like, oh, Mozilla is Google's, you know, boy. Mozilla can't get out from under Google's thumb. And, and there's some truth to that. If Firefox, over time, I think the peak market share was 27% right after Chrome launched, maybe within a year. And then it declined, and Chrome passed Firefox in 2011, as I recall. At that point, people probably had a, a little bit of a point about the game theory. Like, if Firefox keeps going down and you're relying on Google for revenue, at some point they might just say, you know, it's a write-off or... Okay, but you know, here's the new deal, and the terms aren't as good, or who knows what. I think this is, you know, partly on me. We should have been cognizant of that and looked for another better way to sustain Mozilla. 
Um, they did eventually go with Yahoo after I left. I, I'm not going to comment on that because um, Verizon's buying it. And it's all no, it's kind um, of all different now. <laughs> we can talk about that on a different show. Um, but but I'll, I'll say that for CEOs or aspiring CEOs or anybody thinking about management, you, you want to be strategic too and not, not assume everything's forever and, and have a, a sort of a, a map of where the future is that you can use to navigate out of your deals as well as you know, sustain the ones that will sustain while they're, while they're going good. Nice. Um, Sorry, Brian, did you have something you wanted to ask? Uh, I just, earlier I wanted to say you have to be brave not to use brave. Anyway, <laughs> you can use that if you want. I can also be your CEO if you want. I mean, oh. <laughs> <laughs> the idea was you have to be brave to use brave because like we make... Oh. Like, if we make it hard on, on users a little bit, I'm, I'm not really selling it well here, am I? I'm not really a salesman. Uh, <laughs> what, what I mean is, if you're going to defend your data and your sort of security from malware and from trackers and annoyances and people who are snooping on you, that takes a little bit of, of courage because at first you might find they're saying, oh, you're using an ad blocker, you can't read my my great publisher content, or you might get a, a, a page that doesn't quite work right, or you might have to turn on Flash for one site, and it'll turn off in seven days. Uh, but whatever you do, it's going to take a little extra effort, and you should be willing to expend that effort because, you know, we aren't passive couch potatoes on the web. That's just a bad model. That's like the TV model. And I'm, people worry the web is going to turn into TV, and to the extent videos rising and everyone wants Netflix and chill, sure, why not? I mean, you can't stop that. But I believe the web will always have a textier side and a, a more balanced relation between producers and consumers. Obviously, the, the, you know, the YouTube stars for the, you know, the young generation today completely disjoint from the, sort of the Hollywood mainstream media, as far as I understand it. I'm old, so I have to go away hearsay here. Uh, anyway, um, the web is, is more you know, read-write and less passive. And that, I think, allows for some of the web citizens to be brave and to assert their rights. And that can change the web standards. And that's, to finish the early point I made about brave, we're not just in it to build something that's um, custom and it's all open source. So what we'd like to do is standardize, you know, standardize better standards for things like ad blocking and ads and anonymous ads and um, you know, micro paywalls, micro payments, anonymous payments, micro donations. Yeah. Those th those facilities are not in the web standards, and people have to cobble them together, site by site, or go around and, and do deals with sites. And you don't want to sign in with you know nine different micro payment systems. Yeah, that's that's actually the big question I had was uh, around micro payments and where you kind of see the. Uh, you know, future for entrepreneurs in that area. Like, is Medium going to be a giant monopoly now for blogs? <laughs> I guess it already is, but um, yeah, micropayments is very exciting. It is, and I, I think, we, you know, there, there can be many approaches. At the end of the day, it, you know, think farther out at the end of the <laughs> decade. If you're building a web that's sort of important for its its... I won't say legacy, but it's long-term durable, like text and video and images content. But you're also building AR, and you're sort of Pokemon going it over the real world. And you're building VR, which is definitely a gamer thing, but can, I think, grow from there. There's, there's some industrial and educational ob obvious uh, plays that are going well. Then suddenly you have all these shared assets. And it isn't just the text and the video and the images and the links and the scripts. It's things like 3D models and texture art that skins those models. How are you going to protect those? Sorry. Uh, how are you going to protect those assets? DRM isn't going to cut it. You're in a shared world. You can't encrypt the pixels with a secret key for each user when there are 50 or 50,000 pairs of eyes looking in through VR on your model. So you're going to have to do older things like watermarking, which I've blogged about in the past. And you're going to have to consider ideas from Ted Nelson's project Xanadu, which predated the web, like micro-royalties. And these need to be high integrity. These need to be part of the protocol. They need to be woven into the fabric of this you know, new um, super web. And, and, and they, they need to be 
uh, common among all browsers and viewers and AR and VR devices. So what, what I hope happens here is, is future standards will make payments, anonymous payments, micropayments, um, sort of frictionless payments, um, possibly for those who want to see them, anonymous ads. Um, I'm always trying to get people to use, with permission, the Minority Report scene where Tom Cruise is on the lam and he's going into the like the subway and he's he's he, everybody in the subway their retinas are being scanned, which I don't know if that's actually practical, but it's really creepy because they're all being identified. There's no privacy at all, and they're all getting sort of beamed sound in their ears, promoting you know custom ads to them. I think that's totally dystopian. <laughs> I'm not sure it's scientifically feasible, and it 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 just seems. Um, like we shouldn't have that future. We should have a future where, whether you're walking around or you're in AR, you know, combination of virtual and real, or you're in virtual, you have control over your data and you have control over your identity. And if we don't build that into the, the standards at the right levels, it's gonna become captured by the walled gardens or the big superpowers and it's gonna get abused. Oh, this has been a really interesting show. It didn't exactly go the direction I was expecting, but I'm just like really <laughs> amazed at uh, at the thought that you've put into this and and uh, hearing kind of the history of of why we are in the state that we are and and the things that you're doing. Um, and so, with with a little bit of time that we have left, um, I I am curious what your thoughts are um, after a little bit of time with this new yearly release schedule of ECMAScript. Um, uh, what what thoughts do you have around that uh, yearly releases of uh, ES um, specifications and and what uh, um, like is this going to work out with this yearly train? You know, I think it's it's just better to do it that way. Even though there was kind of a small uh, you know release, obviously in the shadow of ES six. Um, so I think ES twenty fifteen. Excuse me. <laughs> Somebody tweeted the other day. <laughs> yeah. And she said, slightly drunk here, but I'll, yeah, yeah. I, hate, I hate ES 2015. It's always ES6 forever, uh, or Viva La ES6. And I, I like retweeted and said, huzzah. Um, so yeah, <laughs> ES20, it's off by nine. It's really kind of confusing. ES7 became ES2016, which is happening. Uh, and then ES2017, I hope to have... Um, since nobody else is doing it, I'm back trying to get 64-bit integers and other sort of number types in. Um, that's That work goes on, and it's easier to do in small pieces. I think the committee is is better off for this annual process. It does make smaller releases with smaller features. That's appropriate for something of JavaScript's age. I keep joking that it's 21, so I kicked it out of the house. It's It's got to go find its own way in the world. And it'll probably be going for 21 more years, but... The smaller um, changes and the more careful changes cannot be the only way that we do things. So there are some bigger changes, and they take um, more time to cook. So that you have to be willing to put them through the stages of the process, from stage zero when they're just sort of a an idea, to stage one when the committee says that that's something we'll entertain, to stage two. I forget all the rules, but you have to start having spec language. To stage three when you can actually have vendors implement prototype versions of them under flags or in nightly builds. And then stage four, when they're all but done and pretty much implemented, that can happen very quickly for a small proposal. So that's cool. We can even jump stages in over several days of meeting of one one meeting session. Then you know the bigger stuff, which requires sort of spiraling around the design, outside in and inside out, looking at it from many angles, and starting to you know user test it through Babel or other techniques of prototyping it. That that. Um, you can do ahead of even the ECMA process. That that can happen, and it needs to happen for some of the bigger changes. Even though JavaScript's mature, you know, some there's some some growth still ahead of it that it can't be done in small increments. And and yet, I think the small smaller is better. So small is beautiful, and that's why I think the annual cadence is good, in spite of hating the year numbers. <laughs> awesome, cool. Um, so actually, for some of the, the bigger changes we want for the web, lots of those things can kind of happen in WebAssembly, right? So what are, what are some, like, and, and some people actually are making the claim that WebAssembly is going to totally remove the need for JavaScript in the future, and anybody learning JavaScript is, gonna, is, is learning a, a dying skill. Um, what, what do you have to say about that? Oh, I think that's, that's clearly false. And, and there are a couple of big reasons. One is 
JavaScript is is obligatory. Um, it, it cannot avoid it. it. It browsers must implement it. WebAssembly will take many years to become, I think, that that uh, obligatory, and uh, it, it will be in uh, nightly builds uh, soon. If it isn't already, I think there were announcements this week from Microsoft and, and V8 and, and uh, Spider Monkey and Mozilla. So, you know, and everybody asks about Apple, and I had a comment on Hacker News about that. It's coming, right? WebAssembly is coming, but it's going to be a while before it's really there, and you can count on it. And then when it's there, it's really at first a target language for C and C++ cross-compilation. So anyone who's saying you don't need to learn JavaScript, are they really saying you go learn C++ to write code for your browser? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think that scales any more than saying write Java in 1995 did. That's why we did JavaScript, because there are 10 to 50 times as many programmers who can handle JavaScript as can handle a, a complex, you know, classy, uh, statically typed language. And that will always be true. Uh, and you shouldn't have to write, you know, Java or C++ to do simple things in your browser. So JavaScript is the, the way you do simple things in your browser. WebAssembly won't be. Now, long term on the WebAssembly roadmap are things like garbage collection and sort of V tables for efficient objects, dynamic objects, or, or objects that have, um, you know, multiple inheritance. That, that kind of stuff will come, and it will allow WebAssembly to be a good target language for other cross-compilers, like you can imagine Python and Ruby cross-compiling very nicely to WebAssembly in the future. That will take several years at least. So even then, I think it's going to be a problem of, of scale. Do you want to get that Python or Ruby cross-compiler and use it? Do you want to fight the friction of, even in a few years, WebAssembly still being a little bit of a mismatch or still an evolving thing that has to be even better at being a target for Python after it became an awesome target for C++ in the, in the present era. And that means JavaScript will still be the, the fastest, slickest, most optimized way to go. Um, finally, you know, when you're running these WebAssembly modules, and they are, it's a modular system, you're running what will initially be cross-compiled like game code or physics engines or uh, DSP or AI that's written in C++ compiled to WebAssembly, um, you have to cross the barrier calling from JavaScript. And that can get, it should get really cheap over time, but that can be expensive at first. So what, what I think will happen is there'll be a ton of incentives to use JavaScript. It's still the fastest way to get things done. It's still going to have the lowest sort of overall cost structure. And, and, and to do things that it can't do, you, you'll, you can reach for WebAssembly. Um, because I mentioned it's a modular approach, they can share memory, they share the heat, they can, they can share things in memory. That means that a lot of times you can't just say, we'll add it to WebAssembly because it ends up popping up in JavaScript too. So they're kind of co-evolving. So when I say always bet on JS, I could amend it to say and WebAssembly, but there, there isn't really a future I can foresee. Obviously anything's possible, like in, in 20 years, I gave it 21 more years, JavaScript will drop dead at 42, and WebAssembly will be, will be it. And that will be the end of JavaScript. I actually prophesied this the other year. But I'm not going to say what year exactly. I'm joking when I say 21 more years. We'll see. <laughs> cool. Uh, <clears throat> All right. So we can still bet on JS <laughs> for the foreseeable future. For the foreseeable. It's a good bet. <clears throat> cool. All right. Well, um, that's uh, we're actually, I think, a little bit over. And, and I have some things I want to say for our last show. Um, but uh, thank you so much, Brendan. This has been awesome. Uh, we don't actually have any uh, questions on Twitter, so we'll just jump right into our tips and picks. Um, so yeah, we'll go ahead and have Brian go first. Oh yeah, hey, sorry, I got to leave soon. So um, I just wanted to throw out there that uh, I've been um, reading this Matryoshka library for Scala, and and I think it's it's something people should look at because if you didn't realize how many composable recursion schemes there are, and you're still writing loops, you should go enlighten yourself. Also, uh, Bartosz Maluski is doing uh, amazing category theory videos on YouTube, so check those out. And also, shout out to the show. I've had an amazing time. Thanks, Kent. <laughs> hey, thank you so much, Brian. Could you get links to those in the show notes? Uh, yeah, I have no yeah. idea what Matricia is. <laughs> yeah, I'll throw those in there. <laughs> hey, thanks so much, Brian. You've been an awesome panelist. Uh, cool. Uh, Tyler, you go ahead next. Uh, yep. So I don't really have any. I just wanted to give a shout out like Brian did. Uh, I guess my pick is the show, and specifically you, Kent C. Dodds. I know it took a ton of work um, consistently every week to do this. So super grateful, super glad I was able to be a part of it. I uh, just want to say thank you for myself, but also the uh, JavaScript community as a whole. Hey, thanks, man. 
Um, cool. So I, I, for this last show, have um, one tip and a bunch of picks. So I'll try to go through them quickly. Um, so my tip is start a podcast. Uh, so uh, it is a lot of work, um, but it is a lot of fun. And I have some resources to help you get going uh, that I'm linking up. So like even like an hour conversation that I had with somebody about how to start a podcast like JavaScript Air. So lots of really good resources there if you want to get into that. Um, I even have like lot, lots of my automation stuff is open source and you can totally use it. So um, yeah, and then for my picks, I pick the sponsors. Uh, so I tweeted this earlier, the sponsors, um, uh, the top three sponsors, the Egghead.io, Frontend Masters, and Track.js, they actually asked me for my reimbursement for the remaining time of this sponsorship. They asked me to uh, donate that reimbursement to Girl Develop It, which I just think is the coolest thing. So. Um, yeah, that was like $1,300 of, of donation, which is so cool. Uh, good on you, sponsors. And then uh, the guests, um, I'm just, I have a page on JavaScriptAir.com that has all of the guests. Um, so I'm just super grateful for them. Couldn't, couldn't have done it without them. I should have counted, but they're like over 100 probably um, in just this year that I've been doing this uh, JavaScript Air. Uh, and then the panelists, I have a link to all of them. They're awesome. Uh, and then contributors. So there have been actually a lot of pull requests to javascriptair.com. The whole design was contributed by somebody else. So big thank you to those people. Um, and then the audience. Um, so thank you so much, audience, for being so awesome. Um, and then, <clears throat> oh yeah, and also, like I didn't really plan super well. I, I never intended on making money out of this show, and so I didn't plan super well for um, making it sustainable. And I didn't realize until it was too late that closing down the show and all reimbursements and, and other wrap-up costs um, was going to actually cost me a lot of money. So big thank you to people who donated um, to um, help ease that um, financial burden a little bit. Um, and then just a couple of things. If you're really sad that the show is is ending, um, I, I am going to continue to do um, what are called tech chats. Uh, tech chat is basically... Um, I am curious about uh, Brave, and so I talked to um, John about Brave, or like um, I, I just talked to somebody. It's like a water cooler conversation over Hangouts on Air, um, so I can ask questions. So it's almost like this podcast, except it's informal and it's irregular. Uh, but I do have a playlist that I, I'm linking up to, so you can check those out. Um, and then uh, I have a list of podcasts that I listen to. Uh, so if you want to. Uh, continue to listen to some great podcasts. Um, I have a bunch of them here, like uh, React 30 is cool. I have a little three-minute podcast called Three Minutes with Kent that I, I uh, do sometimes. Planet Money is super awesome. Embedded is super cool. JavaScript Jabber was the first one I ever subscribed to. Soft Skills podcast, when there's a new episode of Soft Skills, it goes to the top of my queue. It's a super good podcast. Um, the Changelog is awesome. Request for Commits, Mostly Node, and Tools Day. Uh, those are some awesome podcasts. And Software Engineering Daily is super good, too. Um, and then my AMA, I, if anybody has questions for me, I, I like to answer those. So you can go to um, my AMA and ask those. I have a link there. And then finally, or, or no, second to finally, sorry. Like I said, I have a lot because I'm not going to do this anymore. Kentsydodds.com <laughs> um, slash links, uh, links to a whole bunch of stuff. Um, um, about myself. So if you're interested in learning more, um, then there's that. And then my last pick is like part of the reason that I'm wrapping up the show is because there are other things that I'm interested in um, putting my time into, um, more interested than, than continuing the show. So Slice.js is a, uh, this really cool thing that I'm, I'm working on that has awesome implications, like this thing that I made up called Ultra Tree Shaking. Um, and uh, also learning code bases and stuff. And I'm giving a talk on it tomorrow night at a, a meetup here in Utah, uh, which I will probably live stream. So I've got some links to that. Um, so sweet, yeah, that's all of my stuff. Brendan, what do you have for us? Oh, I just want to say thanks to you. That uh, It's been a great run uh, and really appreciate your work on this. Um, let's see, I, I was uh, interested in, in something called Inferno, which is uh, from... Uh, Dominic um, Ganaway, um, his GitHub uh, name is True ADM, and it's a React-like um, library, JavaScript library. I just wanted to turn people on to it. I think if you go to infernojs.org, it might be the easiest way to do it. 
but you have to kind of click on the logo to get to the GitHub because uh, the site's not quite there. Um, that's one thing I wanted to recommend. The other thing I wanted to mention is something that I realized from Twitter people don't know about, and that's ES6 um, destructuring parameters. When you use like object patterns and array patterns, you can put default values for the missing property properties that are being destructured in into the pattern using the equal sign. Um, I can't really explain it over the air, <laughs> um, but check it out. Destructuring in ES6 has this awesome sort of defaulting of individual properties inside the object or array pattern. Uh, it's really handy for like options arguments. Awesome. Yeah, that's a great that's tip. tip. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Brandon, for starting and ending this show with us. Um, it's been an awesome run, like you said. I, we've had a really good time. Maybe someday we'll start it up again. So. Thanks so much, Brendan. <laughs> All right, uh, that's it. So we'll we'll wrap things up. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Yeah.